The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This episode is sponsored by Kindred Bravely. Kindred Bravely came to life in 2015 by Deanne Akerson, a mom of two, when she couldn't find any comfortable and functional pajamas while nursing her second son. So she decided to design her own line. As moms, we have to stick together, which is where Kindred comes from. And Bravely, well, we all know being a mom can be tough. It is not for the faint of heart. It takes courage and bravery to be a mom. And at Kindred Bravely, they are devoted to making life easier for pregnant and nursing moms, from breast pads and non-skid socks to nursing bras and pajamas. And I might not be pregnant or nursing, but I can advocate completely for how comfortable their clothing is. I wear the uh, cardigan almost every single day, certainly around the house. And I gifted my sister some leggings. Um, She is pregnant with her third child and she is absolutely over the moon for them. She wants me to get her some more. So you can get your own and save while you do by using my code UNSTRESS20 to save 20% off your purchase at kindredbravely.com. You're listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am so glad that you're here, as always. And if this is the first time that you've ever tuned in, welcome. I'm honored that you found the show. And I'm so excited to share the work of my guest with you this week. I'm speaking with author and scholar Anna Malika Tubbs, and we're discussing her groundbreaking and essential debut, The Three Mothers. This book celebrates Black motherhood by telling the story of the three women who raised and shaped some of America's most pivotal heroes, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. I loved having this conversation because not only do we get into some really interesting facts about these three women, but we also talk about the incredibly important role that mothers have in the shaping and formation of the next generation and how, as a country, as a society, we can better serve these mothers. Because it doesn't only impact the mothers, it directly impacts the kids and the next generation coming up and our future as humans on planet Earth. So we start small, we get specific, and then we go broad. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you do, please share it with a friend and make sure to tag us on social media at Motherhood Unstressed if you're listening and out and about. Please enjoy this episode with Anna Malika Tubbs. Well, hello, Anna. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for having me. It's my honor. Absolutely. Now, I feel like, oh gosh, there's so many places where I could start with this interview, but why don't you take the listener to your origin story? What are the events that happened in your life that led you to doing the work you're doing now, your life's purpose? 
Yeah. So my parents, I'll start by talking a little bit about them. They met in Sweden. Um, This is where the relationship started. My dad was a political refugee from Ghana and my mom had grown up in Clarkston, Washington and had a desire to be a lawyer, even though everyone told her that as a woman, she should just focus on becoming a mom and a wife. And she really wanted to have her own career because her father was a judge and she wanted to follow in his path, even though he was one of the primary people saying that she shouldn't. Um, and so she kind of took herself and her her firstborn, my sister from um, her first marriage, and traveled the world. And so she was a professor in Sweden, and that's how they met each other. So I start with my parents because I think it's always really important to know who the people were who raised you um, and how it is that they passed on their drive, um, you know, what it was, the challenges that they were facing and how they then taught you how to face the challenges in your life. Um, And so I'm the kind of person who, no matter what people might say I can't do, I feel like I can do anything. Um, I'm also very well aware of my history and my dad always carried his Ghanaian Um, stories and culture with him and making sure that we were well aware of our people's history as well. And this constant inspiration from both of them that, yes, this world could be difficult. Yes, there were going to be challenges in our way, but that didn't define us or limit us or keep us from whatever it was, was that we wanted to do in our lives. I love that. I love that. And obviously you carried that throughout your your academic career, um, earning a PhD, among other things. Um, and, and it led you to writing a really incredible book that was on the New York Times bestseller list, I think, for over four weeks, which is amazing, an amazing feat in itself. Um, so can you talk about how the book came to be, why you chose those three women in particular to be vessels for the way you see the world, the way it could be? Um, I started writing this book. Uh, it's the same as my dissertation for my PhD. So I started my PhD in 2017, um, and I was really inspired by Margot Lee Shetterly's research for Hidden Figures, um, this incredible book that went on to become this amazing movie. And I was inspired because I left the story and the film feeling very angered. This was the first time I'd heard these women's stories, and it was clear to me that that erasure of them was very intentional. It wasn't a mistake. It's not like somebody said, you know, oops, we forgot to tell you that black women were behind this all along, that they were the brains behind space calculations. Um, But instead, black women do do not fit our kind of hegemonic notion of who the leaders and heroes of our stories are. And therefore, we're going to kind of erase them and hide them under the rug. So I said, I'm going to be somebody who finds other hidden figures. And I paired that with my passion for speaking about motherhood. Um, I wasn't a mom yet myself, but my mom always spoke about the importance of women and mothers and this very critical role they were playing for societies around the world. And that if countries respected mothers, then that country would do well. If they didn't, that country would not do well. This was kind of her theory that everything could relate back to the treatment of motherhood. So I was going to do something on hidden figures, black women who had been erased, but also something with motherhood. And I decided on these three because I wanted the largest audience possible really to come to a book about black women and black mothers who had been forgotten and hidden. And so I was really strategic about thinking of who we all are always excited to hear more about, um, conversations that we come back to every year, and we probably will continue to do so. Um, So of course, the civil rights movement, I knew more people would pick up the book 
if the names MLK Jr. and Malcolm X were on there. Um, And then I thought, okay, this will bring the largest audience possible to this celebration of Black motherhood and Black womanhood. Um, I then discovered uh, that Alberta King, MLK Jr.'s mother, Brutus Baldwin, James Baldwin's mother, and Louise Little, Malcolm X's mother, were all born within six years of each other. And their famous sons were all born within five years of each other. So that allowed me to bring these three incredibly different stories and beautifully rich in their diversity from each other um, stories together in time without reducing their identity, without putting them into boxes or categories, but instead exploring their differences and their experiences um, through chronology. So the chapters progress through 10 years of their lives and 10 years of American history also um, that you're now going to see throughout from their perspective. So did anything when you were doing all of your research, pulling all the data together for the dissertation, for the book, did anything surprise you? You know, the biggest surprise for me when I went into writing it, I just was interested in telling these women's stories um, in their own right. So I wasn't necessarily seeking the direct connection to the son's works or anything like that. But what surprised me over and over again was that it was such an obvious connection between the mothers long before their sons or even thoughts in their minds and what their sons go off to to become famous for. Um, And so just some examples, you know, imagine me being one of the first people to ever study these women and I'm finding pieces of the puzzle wherever I possibly can. And I'm interviewing local historians and I'm sifting through piles and piles of archives in different museums, etc. And I'm pulling out these little pieces of information where, for instance, one of James Baldwin's principals at one point said that he clearly inherited his writing talent from his mother solely based off of the letters that she would write to excuse his absences. Um, that's something that we all should have known, that even a principal at his school, a letter that basically just said, my son's sick and he's not going to make it today, um, she would use this opportunity to show that she she was a writer herself, and this is where her son was learning how to write so beautifully. Um, so that's just a little moment where I, you know, all day long have been researching, trying to find some evidence of her, and someone has told us already it's because of her that he could do this. Um, then we think about, you know, there's a lot of examples, but I'm just going to give one for each with Malcolm X. When um, he's considering joining the nation of Islam, he writes a letter to his brother where he says, um, all of our accomplishments are our moms. And mom is the first person to have taught us these same lessons so many years ago. So you then understand that him converting to the nation is not a brand new ideology for him. It's actually something that he feels is a return to what his mother taught him growing up. Again, we all should have known that. That was such a surprise for me that the sons were making those connections themselves. And then with MLK Jr., the fact that We've for so long said that he inherited his the church, Ebenezer Baptist Church, from his father, when in reality it was actually his mother's parents, so his maternal grandparents, who established Ebenezer Baptist Church, that she inherited it from her parents, that when she got married, her husband moved in with her because her family was the more influential one. And she had a bachelor's degree and a teaching certificate. Um, So these are all the things that I'm constantly picking up and discovering and feeling shocked over and over again, that this wasn't already a part of our shared understanding. Yeah. And, and going back to kind of the crux of your argument about this erasure, like that word really stuck with me. I mean, it was, it was almost kind of like 
a shock. Why do you think that that has happened over the years? Why do you think that that continues to happen in a lot of cases? Yeah, it's so funny because this is my the subject of my next book, actually, because I was asked this question a lot. And of course, we all are wondering if we now know how incredible these women were and how influential and how inextricable they are from their son's stories, how were they erased? Why did this happen? And it's a hard thing to answer in one question, and that's why I'm going to write a whole book about it. But to summarize the premise of it, it's this notion of patriarchy and um, the system of patriarchy and the way it intersects with racism um, and many other isms, it makes it so that certain lives are devalued, that the further you are from being a white cisgendered man, the less we care about your life, the less we support that life, the less we protect it. Um, And then posthumously, it's the less that we keep record of that life. It's, we don't care to um, keep these stories alive. We think about it kind of, I think about it as a puzzle that we've allowed to fall apart, that we um, kind of leave pieces, some places, some places, pieces get thrown in the fire or chewed on by a dog, etc. Because if we don't value that life while you were alive, we certainly don't value it um, once you're no longer here on this earth. And so um, I want to really make that clear and visible to everybody that it shouldn't actually be that surprising that they were erased because it's how the system was built to work. Um, and a system that is actually very tangible. You know, there are laws that were written to suppress and um, erase women and very specifically women of color. And um, we even see it now with a lot of our discussions around what stories we are and are not allowed to tell in schools, et cetera. So the system is very strategic. um, And this is just one symptom. The erasure of their stories is just one symptom amongst countless symptoms of the system. Yeah. I mean, you said that so beautifully. And I think, you know, even just having this conversation and bringing it to the forefront and and putting it into people's awareness, it does start to create a shift, but that's only, you know, in that initial perspective. But I think that that can still be powerful. You know, it's changing that perspective that you've touched on. What can we do as a society? I know that's a, a big question, but what little things can we start to do besides, you know, just having conversations like this to begin to tilt the scale away really from a patriarchal system? Yeah, I actually think storytelling is huge and it may feel like these kind of small moments where it's a conversation here and there, um, but especially when it starts to be on this larger scale of, I even think about how many people have read the book, um, something that like your work takes on a life of its own. And as you mentioned, four weeks on the New York Times bestseller list that people are reading these stories, recommending it to someone else. And it's not just so that we can know the names, Alberta King, Bertus Baldwin, Louise Little. That's a huge part of the goal as well. We want to be able to make these household names, people know them, but also so that we experience that sense, that same shock that I felt why didn't I know this already? And what changes in my understanding, not only of myself, when I know about these three incredible Black mothers, um, but also my understanding of our history as a nation, my understanding of how we've arrived where we are today, my understanding of policy that we are still debating, um, and how their lives can teach me about how I should vote even. So thinking about, you know, I often go to several specific examples from the three women, but policy that we are still talking about now, they are teaching us through their lives kind of the path forward um, rather than a cycle um, of regression or repeating mistakes from the past. And um, I think storytelling is really critical. And I, I think 
I spent a lot of time abroad um, and moved around from country to country. I especially think storytelling in the U.S. is really important. We care deeply about, you know, what our celebrities are doing. We care about what's in movies um, and uh, magazines, et cetera. So to have a book like mine receive as much attention as it did, I mean, that's not to toot my own horn, but more so to say these are the stories that people want to hear because we're looking for that guidance for how to move forward. And I think when we look, for instance, with Alberta King, um, as I mentioned, she had a bachelor's degree, a teaching certificate. She was on her way to become an educator. But at the time, there was a law that stated that married women could not teach and could not work in several different positions. And so she was pushed out of her job, even though she was well qualified to do it, simply because of a patriarchal law. And we don't have that law in existence anymore, but we still see many examples of women being pushed out of their jobs, um, whether or not they choose to have children. Why is that something that we're still debating? And how can we learn from her life to do it differently now? With Louise Little, um, she was put, put in an institution against her will for 25 years of her life because a white male doctor said that she was, and this is a quote from her doctor's note, imagining being discriminated against. This was a black immigrant woman in Michigan. Um, she was a radical activist, a proud Garveyite, a proud black nationalist, um, being told by a white male doctor that she's imagining being discriminated against. And that's enough to put her away against her will for 25 years of her life. And as shocking as that sounds, there's this bias in our healthcare system continues to exist, especially for black women when they say, I'm experiencing this pain. We see this with Serena Williams, Beyonce reporting. No one believed what I was saying, or they were trying to tell me differently about my experience as if they knew better um, than I did about what was going on in my body and in my mind. Um, so it's not something that we really, again, should be so shocked about, but instead we should think about how we can shift those biases to this day. Um, and then an example from Bertis Baldwin, she had nine children. Um, her husband passed away when she was in her 30s. So she's raising nine children on her own, um, but she doesn't have access to affordable quality childcare. And there are so many mothers today who would say, similarly, I don't have the supports that I need to do my job as a mother well. Um, and although she did do an incredible job and her children are all, and the ones I was able to interview, so grateful for everything that she did to provide for them, it shouldn't have been so difficult for her to do that in the United States of America. So that's really what happens. It's this kind of ripple effect of storytelling and then working alongside this larger team of people and everybody's kind of playing their role, whether that's you're running for office um, or you're going to be a philanthropist who supports certain candidates and gives your money towards that, or you're marching or you're writing articles or you're an artist who paints a mural that changes our view of everything. All of those moments really do make an incredible difference. Yeah, but I just love that, you know, you put something out into the world that now does have a life of its own, and it is creating its own ripple effect. And hopefully, you know, there will be, um, you know, shows and movies or things like that just based on, on, your, your, on your effort to collect those stories and to get the bigger picture that we haven't seen. I mean, I, I live in Atlanta. I've been to Dr. King's house, and I never knew. I never knew it was actually his mother's childhood home. I mean, it's just... It's mind boggling. It's a little bit, it's angering, but at the same time, like I feel like, okay, you know, there is a momentum happening, you know, certainly within the past two years, like people are 
awake, you know, more so than, than we've ever really been. Um, at least people who are probably asleep a long time. Um, Mm. but what would you say? I mean, how, how do you, how do you gauge the U S because you have lived all over the world? How do you gauge how we're doing here as far as social programs, you know, for mothers, for parents, um, compared to other places in the world and, and what are some places in, in the rest of the world that are, that are getting it right? Yeah. Um, I'd say we're not doing well at all. And I'm not the only person who says that there are, there's research, there are numbers we can look at, there's data, um, especially when we're looking at mothers. We have high levels of postpartum depression in the U.S., um, very high levels of even you know C-sections. And that's not to say that C-sections are wrong. It's just that a lot of women feel that they were not fully informed on their options or that they were forced to do something they didn't really want to do. Or in the, their most vulnerable moment, they felt like they weren't being heard or listened to. They were afraid. There are so many moments where there's this constant feeling that Mothers in the U.S. are unheard, um, unsupported. Uh, We see this again with the black maternal health crisis, that black women in the U.S. are up to four times more likely to die in pregnancy or in childbirth. Um, But overall, I mean, we should all be concerned about the black maternal health crisis. And there's a larger maternal health crisis. It's not good for any of us. Um, The numbers are really bad compared to other um, nations. And Places that I think are doing it well, um, that I think value the importance of taking care of mothers, making sure that parents have the supports that they need and the time that they need um, to be parents, uh, are places that are not quite as, I would say, um, heterogeneous as the United States is, where we have a lot more diversity. Um, But that doesn't mean that we can't still take from these models and apply them in the U.S. That's not an excuse. Diversity is not an excuse to to say we, we don't and can't do the same things that places, let's say, like Sweden mm-hmm. can do, um, where you sometimes have up to two years um, as a parent to uh, be with your child, bond with your child. And then when you're ready and it's time for you to go back to work, if you choose to do that, your children then will go to a universal uh, preschool system or will have somewhere to go that is of quality where as a parent, you can feel confident that your child is being taken care of and you can then focus and be productive um, in other ways, whether that is as a stay at home parent where you're going to continue to manage your household um, or if it's working outside of the home, uh, you have that support available to you or even the most basic things like a box that you're sent home with with all of the needs that you're going to have for your child in their first year, um, removing that burden of access from the very beginning. So there's a lot that our country has left to do. Um, The fact that in the Build Back Better Act, um, there was only four weeks of this universal parental leave and it still couldn't pass. Of course, there were a lot of other things that were included in that, but four weeks is nothing. That's not even enough to to recover uh, postpartum at all. And it's really inhumane that any birthing parent be expected to go back. Um, And the same for non-biological parents. There is this essential bonding that needs to happen within a a household. And as a sociologist, I speak about it as the home being our first society and our family being our first society. And if that society is not doing well, if the children in that society feel like their leaders, their parents um, are not supported or that they're stressed and can't make ends meet, then there's an awful ripple effect that extends to the larger society that we all share. And that's why we have to put more protections in place and supports in place for that first society. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, you almost start to wonder, like, is this intentional? Like, is it intentionally set up this way so that we fail, so that we struggle, so that we're stressed out and medicated and numbed so that we just kind of fall in line? I mean, what's your take on that? Because I just, I don't understand like how it is so backwards here. We're supposed to be this beacon on a hill, you know, for the rest of the world. And, and it's just, it's almost laughable. It is. I agree. I mean, I do think that the patriarchy is to blame here um, and that this mindset of the individual succeeding versus succeeding as a community um, is toxic for all of us. And then we spend more time thinking of maybe those who have the privilege and can pay for all the things that can make life easier rather than making this accessible for everyone. I think a lot of it stems from a fear of feminine strength, um, feminine strength being that we are often socialized, socialized to be caretakers for many, to think beyond ourselves as individuals, to um, think about what's better for, for um, a larger group of people rather than just ourselves. But in the U.S., we often emphasize male strength and we call the feminine weak. And therefore, we're only focused on what's best for one person who cares about the rest. I worked really hard and they just need to work harder um, when we know and research has shown that that is not the reason that people are suffering. It's not their fault um, that their society was built to exclude them. And it's something that we just really need to completely turn on its head. I often advocate for the the need for us to emphasize feminine strength more, um, communal strength more, and to realize that this ripple effect that it's having um, is affecting us all. And if someone is doing badly in your shared group, you're all going to do badly. So we need to support one another um, and policy really needs to come into place to make that happen. It's definitely a mind shift. It's definitely a cultural narrative shift. Um, and then policy is the thing that can solidify that shift and protect it. Right. That actually, I feel like, creates the boundaries for a safe society, a safe community, as you have laws to back it up. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and just going back to, like, you think about the three women that you discussed, I mean, the strength that they had at that time to still, you know, persevere with everything against them, with with society the way it was, you know, in the 60s and 50s. I mean, it's just, again, like, I'm, my mind is blown that they still created these men who, who changed the world. Absolutely. You are a mother. Um, what do you do? I mean, with all your research, I mean, I feel like you have this whole academic side, but you can't help but seep into your personal life as well. What have you done to kind of safeguard you and, and nurture the whole woman, not just the mother in one side and then the academic on the other? What do you do to to feel whole and, and nurtured yourself? Yeah, it's interesting because my motherhood and um, the way in which I mother my children is so linked to the research that I've done for not only this book, but also the dissertation where I'm so well aware of an a historic attack on mothering and on the strength of women and how strategic it is to rob that sense of power from us. And so um, as a mother and who's well aware of those attacks and who is constantly trying to fight that, um, I am very confident in my approach to mothering. I have a lot of grace for myself. I know I'm a human being. I know that supports are not things that are, you know, just um, privileges, but rights, you know, that there are people around the world who do have these supports and that we continue and should continue to fight for those things that my partnership should be 
um, a equitable partnership where we're supporting each other that I don't, you know, that I don't need to do more than my husband does when it comes to parenting. And that I also don't need to give him a gold star when he's a good father as he should be. So there's are things that I am constantly reminded of. And I think it is the, the source of the way that I mother is I am aware of how strategic it is that I feel like everything's supposed to fall on my shoulders, or that I'm supposed to be alone or that, um, my husband doesn't, OS anything as a family or anything like that, that in studying it, I'm a well aware of what I'm supposed to advocate um, for and ask for um, and what I expect there to be for me. And um, communicating those needs is, is critical and taking care of myself is critical. And it's not something that I'm going to feel guilty about. Um, so I think when you're aware of why these feelings start to creep into our mind, you know, feelings of fear or feeling of lack of confidence or feeling like you're going to be blamed if anything's going to go wrong or even, you know, down to the smallest things. Like if my child's hair is not done, everyone's going to be wondering where their mom was, et cetera. Um, I know all of this from a historic and sociological perspective and I know how to respond and also what to tell myself. Um, and the voice that I have in my own head of, you are a great mother um, and you're doing an amazing job and you're doing the best that you can with what's available to you. And you're continuing to advocate for the supports that not only you should have, but that other people should have. I come from a space of privilege where we can afford um, to have an amazing nanny, where we can afford to work with doulas um, both times that I gave birth to my, my two children. And I want to make sure that those things are available to everybody and that more women know to demand that and more women know to not just trust somebody else's opinion of what you're supposed to do with your own body um, and to feel that feminine intuition and trust the power and the strength of that. Oh, I love that. You are preaching to the choir. I mean, I, I did two water births with my two, like had a doula, like, yeah, because I, I watched a documentary when I was pregnant about how the system, and I'm sure you know all this, is just like a conveyor belt. Like once you're in the system, they're giving you Pitocin and then you've got to get the C-section. Like you're trapped. The second that you're like, okay, yeah, do whatever you want, you're trapped. You're, you're, you've lost all control. So I totally am aligned with that thinking of do your own research and, and really trust your own intuition in your body to know what's right for you, especially as a mother, because, you know, if you're not protecting yourself, how can you protect your child? You know, it's really, it's really up to you. I think even being aware of the money behind all of those things, you know, that, um, that's a part of the strategy too, that the hospital will actually make more money if you do get the Pitocin, if you do get the epidural, if you do have a C-section. And again, I believe that any way that mothers bring their children into this world is the most beautiful and incredible, magnificent accomplishment. Um, and I never would want a mother to feel like I'm judging her decisions. The thing that I'm judgmental of is the lack of information shared with women on how our bodies are being used in this larger system. And I just want us to be more aware so that whenever we make the decision, uh, we know everything that's going into that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if there were one final message, I feel like we could just end on that, but we want to tie everything back together. If there were one final message that you would like to leave with the listener on the three mothers or on, you know, the body of your work at large and where you, where you want it to go next, what would that be? 
I would say as we're celebrating Mother's Day, um, that there be a shift in how we're thinking about the role of motherhood, that it be less about let's thank mothers for putting their needs behind everybody else's um, and kind of being these beings that don't have needs of their own and instead thank them um, for their influence and for their power and for the lessons that they've taught us for being our first caretakers, our first leaders, our first teachers to start to turn the question back to mothers and ask, how can we support you? How can we help you develop your passions or think through the things that you want and need to do in your own life? Um, To see mothers as the human beings that we are uh, is really critical. So as we're celebrating Mother's Day um, for years and years to come, that we really shift our own approach to the mothers in our lives um, and really think about what we can give back to them. And if we're mothers ourselves to really center ourselves a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's everything. I mean, that is how we create the next generation of amazing human beings who are going to propel us forward. So I couldn't be more in agreement. Anna, thank you so much for being on this show. Now, where can our listener find out more about you and get the book? You can follow me on social media and you can find my handles on my website, AnnaMalikaTubs.com. Beautiful. And I'm sure you can get the book wherever books are sold. Uh, yes. It should not oh, be yeah, hard to find. find. <laughs> 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 well, thank you so much. This is such a pleasure. Thank you for the work that you're doing in the world, truly. You too. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money.